Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I am one of your co-hosts, Joe Kennedy. And I also am one of your other two co-hosts, Dave Gebro. So first things first, we need you to know just how seriously we take this shit. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. And we don't just cover albums. Those are just the kind. Johnny Come Lately shows we cover everything down to the EPs, the relevant uh, bootleg stuff, the live stuff. You name it, we do it. The crappy later albums when nobody cares anymore. That's all right. Of, all of that. <laughs> Every uh, record is reviewed and rated with a objectively accurate star rating from zero to five stars. And this is the only way that I have found which allows us all to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Today on Discography, we are respraying the cans for part two of our lengthy discussion about the great, great the band <laughs> that's right how else do you say it uh but this is uh, this is going to take us from 1969 to 1998 getting back to the country turned junkies touring stadiums ladies and gentlemen a much more truncated intro this time around please welcome bob forrest here i am looking at my band stuff i have all my notes now I'm <laughs> much more prepared you're for a, part two you were, prepa you were prepared I, part one this is when all hell breaks loose. It's true. So I, I, I got my own, you know, I, I'm feeling Dave and I are going to butt heads a lot this episode. I can't so wait. Let's go to it. Let's get into That's it. That's what all it's right. all about. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so. I'm just Dave's yes man, so it's good to have somebody bust his balls. <laughs> <laughs> so last we checked in with the boys, they were riding high on the hog. On, that's probably the last thing that Bob and I will agree on. So yes. they were on the cover of Time Magazine, a, uh, a dubious distinction uh, based on the psychological kickback it incurred. Uh, needless to say, they also kick-started kick the Back to the Country movement uh, and you know, had massive, massive success. And so, uh-oh, right? Because it must have been way too intense for these guys to take in that kind of success after languishing in total obscurity or at least being backup band to all these other great luminaries. Uh, Rick Danko said, uh, ever make a million dollars fast? Well, I have. I've seen it ruin people. I've seen it kill people. It's a goddamn cry and shame what success can do to some people. Try having the money and all, having all the drugs you want. Some some people. He should just say myself. Right, right. Say some people. <laughs> this guy I know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and this is where my expertise comes in magically for you guys. So right, right. one of the things they're realizing right now at this point in their career is how much more money Robbie Robertson makes than they do. Right. right. Yeah, we touched that, on that a little bit. Yeah. That by far, the, that is, that's more destructive to the band than heroin itself. Right. That fact. So I guess that's and mainly because of the singles or Robbie's the, songs. The right? songwriting, the songwriting, yeah, right? You know, and and this happens in every band. It happened in my band. It happened in Soul Asylum. It happened in the Chili Peppers. It happened in U two. Jane's, it Jane's in addiction. Every band mm -hmm. and Jane's addiction that I know of, and some bands solve the problem, which is the four way split. All songs written by all four people. Right, that's but hold on, hold on. Bookmark the thought because if you look at a band like Badfinger, that's where that idea is a fucking puddle of diarrhea because anything that's not by Pete Ham sucks. No, he, that's a different thing though because you're talking about like he, Bob's not talking about actually splitting up the songwriting. Oh, uh, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Okay, just, okay. Just okay. the credit. Right, right. 
bands that went for the four-way split are yeah. still playing stadiums to this day. Right, right. And the right. plans that did n- the bands that did not are broken up. Yeah. That's yeah. the fact. Yeah. And so so I I couldn't wait to say that in episode <laughs> two. So let's get to let's get to all the lies and bullshit they tell each other that that is to avoid that issue. Okay, so so first uh, let's give a little context, okay? So, um, you know, one thing to remember and keep in mind, and this is very important, is that after music from Big Pink, these guys had planned to go on tour, but because of Rick Danko's rampant alcoholism, he crashed up a car, they stayed home, and wrote up a batch of even better songs, arguably or inarguably or whatever, ha- what have you, and uh, they never toured. So now the mystique is just so explosive uh they go out on tour and then they come back when they come back to woodstock a cloud of sorts what robbie robertson actually called calls the darkness settled on the band and robbie said it was the drug age in the late 60s and early 70s it was just wall to wall everybody wanted to turn me on to something new there were a lot of people around, crazy people, wonderful people too, but a lot of them were crazy and a lot of them were druggies. Uh, some of them were heroin addicts. Uh, everybody's trying to do you a favor. Some people are trying to do you the wrong favor. You know, what was interesting about drugs in America is it was in the music culture and nowadays, 40 years later, it's just in the everyday life culture, sure. right. right? You see how heroin seeps into the Rolling Stones how it seeps into the band, how it seeps into the Stooges. It seeps into every band. And people wonder why, but it gets you really high from what I've read. This is a powerful drug. And, you know, I have a great quote about what heroin. They asked me, what what does heroin do for you? And I said, it's beyond the world of worry. Right. Because so much of 20th century living is worry and stress and 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 battling your will against the huge machines and everything and you take heroin and it just all seems to be okay right and so so whether it's levon or bob dylan or john lennon or iggy or you just name them they all fell victim to this kind of thing jim morrison his disillusionment with being a rock star i mean there's it, it it ails any pain you got the the journey of the band is the journey of of enlightenment about addiction because Robbie becomes very aware of it. Dominique, his wife, becomes very aware of it. Mm-hmm. All their friends are addicts, and they actually Dominique becomes this this sh- guiding light of recovery. And she was my counselor. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. It's we, crazy. Yeah, it's I, crazy. I, you're actually, but this is 1969, yeah. and she's just having her first kid, and Robbie's about to make $6 million when Rick Dankel makes $1 million. Right, right. What happens, guys? Right, right. <laughs> he only made a paltry million. Shitty albums happen. Yeah. Okay, wait. Okay, not yet, though. Not quite yet. We're, we're not quite there. But. Especially, too. Okay, now, um, there's kind of two ways to look at this. If Robbie's writing all the songs, you know, it makes sense he gets the publishing and everything, right? But kind of not really, because they're bringing them to life. These songs would not have the same value. Well, that's Levon's argument. If yeah. you, if you, yeah, yeah, that is. If you Levon's read Levon's book, he's yeah. like, I didn't know what the fuck published. What the fuck? Right. I wrote yeah. the songs and sang the songs just as much as he did. Right. Mm-hmm. He wrote the lyrics. Like Levon and him, did they ever make peace? I doubt it. I don't think so. Doesn't seem like it. 
So so here's let let let, let me just launch into stage fright. Okay, let, let me just give some context here. So where we're cutting in uh, is uh, they did their first American tour and then returned back to Woodstock to begin work on stage fright. Okay, it's no, not, I thought they work on cahoots. No, 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 no we haven't done nice. stage fright yet. Don't worry, we'll okay. edit. We'll edit out this part to make your long-term memory seem perfect. No, no, no. I, you know, I, it's a miracle I can talk. And now <laughs> we're, and now we're gonna, now we're gonna leave it in because of my amazingly witty dig about your long-term memory. All right, all right. So uh, initially, uh, Robbie says that they intended to do a less serious goof or a good timey record. Um, you know, they they wanted to do something where they kind of let their hair down, right? So they wanted to do it live. Uh, in Woodstock at the Woodstock Playhouse, uh, where I I visited there in uh, in the summer of 2020, and it really is just a ramshackle, uh, just place like kind of out in the middle of woods. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so, but the town council were worried about another Woodstock happening, which which was six months previous. Uh, they vetoed the idea, and so instead the group uh, simply used the uh, the theater as a makeshift studio uh and so they bring in uh, you know albert grossman's managing them he also manages todd rungren so he hooks them up together and todd does not get a producer credit on this album but did engineer the record this is one of the kind of the first big projects that todd produced um and it does have his kind of sonic fingerprint on it he has a sort of like punchy kind of present kind of sound he was and uh this was, I think, was one of the things that really led to him being a very in-demand engineer slash producer. And right. so in a 2010 interview, uh, Robbie, in looking back, and if you, by the way, if you need Robbie to pontificate about something, just look in his direction. <laughs> um, so he describes the recording atmosphere at the time as tense, uh, with the group um, sort of realizing they were in kind of a tricky situation in the playhouse, uh, that they had an unfamiliar presence with, uh, with Todd there, and distraction and a lot of drug experimenting. In Levon Helm's book, uh, This Wheel's on Fire, he describes a dark mood that settled upon us. Uh, he also believed that the record could have benefited from more time, saying for the first time we hadn't cut it to our standard, the days when we would live with the music were over. Right, so they're on the clock. Well, the two songs, the two songs on this album that are the first songs that are really about them, in my opinion. Yes, so absolutely, absolutely. Ahead. Sometimes rock history is a little bit muddy in trying to ascertain where did things go downhill. But in this particular case, track one on the record, Strawberry Wine, it's well documented that Levon Helm was on heroin when he cut that vocal. Well, that's probably why I gave it a two. <laughs> 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 strawberry wine, right no. out of, right off the bat, you, there's a different kind of feel to their playing. It's a more kind of tense sort of feel that they're, yeah, you know, yeah. it, the, like the, an, the kind of empathy that they are kind of so famous for on the first two records. It, here's my take on it. Immediately when you put this on, you think, is this the same band that made those two other records? Right, right. It is it's a little weird. bit different. I don't even think, weird. I don't think in a bad it's way. Weird. So, so I, you know, I don't, uh, this is not, this is the, at this point, the worst song they've ever released. Okay, it but it's really not. Is a it's bad not a. Song. I don't think it's a bad song, but I think uh, you know every song they've ever released is a classic at this point. Yeah. Well, no, but every song. This is where, this is where the band loses most people. Is right. Is yes, there's still two tracks on here that are magnificent, A plus, 
11 stars, whatever. <laughs> but the rest of them just seem like throwaway cover songs. Yeah, like, there's, there's some like, of those like that. Yeah, there's that throwaway feeling, whereas there's an urgency on the first two records. Yeah, Like, we're going to die if we don't get this right. Now it's like whatever they they remind me of the dead now like strawberry wine. Okay, oh okay, come on, like, come on. Those are fucking see, fighting words, right. man. So, right, I'm, gonna, so, I'm gonna clue you in on a little secret. Dave is a deadhead, and I am not. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> let me also make it very specific. I love the dead up to and including 1977. Anything after that is just masturbating into a black hole. Um, which, by well, the way, maybe not, the band beat them to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I will. Uh, one thing I want to just, you know, uh, I, I need to turn my attention on before we, you know, burrow in on coming head to heads on, on this one is, um, you know, uh, Levon sounds agonizingly like Kermit the Frog on this vocal, which is an opiate side effect that no one really speaks about. So, Bob, has this ever happened to you? Yeah, it happens all the time. Like the, the your register lowers down, you don't have the wind kind of you don't have the the air to sing yeah. like you're just so relaxed. I think so, that's the thing. Do you think that's 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 cuz he actually things. doesn't even sound like he does on on any other studio recording, I don't think. Something happened to these guys and I, you know, everybody has their own narrative. By the time I didn't hear this record until years later, but the fact is those two albums are masterpieces, much like The Doors' first album is just a masterpiece. Yeah. And then how do you follow masterpieces? Well, Go to yeah. the masterpieces in rock. The Rolling Stones still haven't even followed up Exile on Main Street, and they're still going. I that's, mean, if That's you, a common theme on this show. Yeah, exactly. We run into that a yeah. lot, like every week. But then also, you know, there's creative answers to that problem that don't involve self-immolation, as we've come to know over time. There are a handful of songs on this record that I like a lot, and then some that yeah, I like less. Two Let's talk about track two. Let's talk about Sleeping. Sleeping, okay. uh, that's maybe my, one of my all-time favorite songs yeah. by the band. Um, really, It doesn't sound song. like a band song, though. Um, well, it, it, it's, it's one of the Richard Manuel classics, I think. I think it does. It's a little bit, it's not so much like in the country tradition, like in that kind of rootsy tradition. The kind of chord changes of the song are almost like Tin Pan Alley. Um, but I do just love the song. I love the way they play, like Robbie's guitar solo, Richard's vocal. That one's a favorite for me. So like that one, Stage Fright and The Shape I'm In are kind of all sort of canon. Do you to listen me. to deep cuts on XM radio all the time? Like that's not my feeling about this song, but okay, okay. go ahead. This, yeah. I, I believe, first of all, this and Just Another Whistle Stop are the only two songs that Manuel receives credit for on the record. Writing credit. Um, yeah. yeah, writing credit. But I Just will, another whistle stop sounds like a band song. Yeah, that's one of my least favorite songs on the record, though. Th this song, I, I will say that there are four songs in the Manuel uh, catalog that feel like an emotional quadrilogy or something. I always come back to them, and that's In a Station, Lonesome Susie, Whispering Pines, and Sleeping. Those four songs uh, are outside even the band's catalog. I think they're just... Some of the most powerful songs ever written. I listen to them often. I'm, you know, I'm a lyrics guy, and and um, this is just this, this is not this isn't Tears of Rage, my friends. No, yeah. no, this no, is no. Not Tears absolutely, of Rage. absolutely. But I'm more of a music guy, so I'm not really honing in. I'm trying to get the mood on that one. Um, Time to Kill, not not an amazing 
song. That's that was a, actually a tanked single. The it ones was, that work that don't work for me so much on this record are the kind of ones where they're kind of forcing the old time, like the, uh, the 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 Walcott Medicine Show and all that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Those those lyrics are kind of like they're kind of trying to force that concept that old timey concept on it it seems like kind of sticky to me on now this. but we're gonna get to, we're gonna get to greatness here pretty quick okay so time to kill we didn't talk about that time yeah. time to kill is a tanked single it reached number 77 um i like you, that one all right you know i think yeah, it's, I, I, I think it's okay i think yeah. i think that's an interesting song lyrically i think there's a see this is where it's interesting to me there's a sort of lightness to the touch and a diffuseness to the lyrics that hadn't been uh, done ever. Uh, but I think it belies a you know, kind of a disturbing subtext to what was happening with the group. Uh, it's I, a good song. It's a good, it's a good solid song. It would be a, it would be a great song if it was by somebody else. I, what I like about this record, it's got that Wilco summer teeth thing where what you're hearing is not really what's going on. Um, yeah, it's a little darker than it seems on the surface. Totally. Um, so, and and then you got a sweep of really good songs uh, about halfway in. All La Glory uh, is, I think, an amazing song about his kids. That's another one that doesn't really scream the band to me. No. But um, good song, though. It's a sweet slide home at the end of side one. That's a Robbie completely that, 100% song. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Leave on yeah. singing. Beautiful. You know, it's, I, a, it's, a good, it's a really good song. I love the idea of writing a really touching emotional song about your kids and then giving it to your buddy who's on, high on heroin to sing. Who hates you. Who hates you. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, so then uh, the second side's got some killers, man. The Shape I'm In. The Shape I'm In has a lyric. Are you ready for it? Please. Go out yonder, peace in the valley. There is no fucking peace in this valley. No, man. definitely not. None. Zero. No. You've got a song written about the guy that you've defeated who's now, you know, just ostracized for the most part. On, on album number two, you crossed him off. He was your only competition. Now you're in complete control. Um, and and that now everybody realizes like, hey, things aren't really that fair you're starting to realize like oh my god Rod, you know robbie bought a huge mansion and he he's got a rolls royce no I've got no, no, a- no 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 these guys are living like uh like schmucks all of them living in dirt and snow and not robbie no, no. i've listen i was i was up there and their places were comparable yeah, but didn't he have a spot out here in california already by then i think he bought a house in i'm malibu. not sure i think robbie no malibu was 73 Okay, but I yeah, think he that was, was seventy three. I think Bob's right though. He was they 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 the they had seen the disparity in money. They yeah, were, they yeah, were, they were aware of it. Yeah, and, I would I would the, I would call this a dawning realization at this point. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's starting to dawn, and Robbie <laughs> writes this piece in the valley because he needs everything to seem. I don't know. I just love that line, piece in the yeah, valley. Yeah, it's great. You can't. There's no peace here. The yeah. drummer won't even talk to you. Like this is not going well. Yeah. And at this point, he has complete say to make it more fair, make it more even. Um, but he doesn't because I'm thinking I'm thinking he's he's now the more drugs and the more chaos and the more fucked up shows and the more people, the more 
you know, arguing back and forth. He's already planning his exit probably in another year. Yeah. Yeah. I heard a podcast that uh, an interview with Todd Rundgren recently, and they asked him about this record. It was pretty interesting to hear him talk about it because uh, his take on it was that producing this record was mostly waiting around for the five of them to be in the same place at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that um, the other, that, you know, the, the three party guys were pretty much, you know, uh, Danko and Levon and, 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 um, and uh, Richard, they, you know, they were, one of them was always kind of out doing something, you know, like the, one of them was always kind of missing or on the nod or whatever. And Robbie at this point was kind of a teetotaler. So there's probably that division happening as well. Robbie's probably thinking to himself, hey, I got my shit together. I'm here on time. I'm ready to record, you know. Right. Why don't That's, I take all the money? That plays into it. Yeah. That plays into it. Well, sure. I mean, when you look at the, you know, the certainly the way that the, the documentary posits it to be, Robbie had, I think at this point he had one kid. He had another one on the way. Um, and he had a solid family life. His wife is a very, uh, has a very strong presence. She's a formidable person. You could tell from the minute she opens her mouth, she's got her own life force that has nothing to do with Robbie. So, um, you know, this is someone worthy of his time, ostensibly. And so then his, all his friends are dicking around with, with really hard drugs. And there's an, it, impossible to avoid schism. And the know. other thing that happens when, with the whole thing of waiting around for all of them to be in the same place at the same time is they just don't invest the same amount of time in getting the performances. It's like it's not like on the Brown album where they're there all day. It's the clubhouse atmosphere. Let's keep going until we get a good take. And I think that it was it was a much more rushed kind of experience to try to get the good take. And it was right. not as and still there. And still they're able to to make a really a really great record by anybody else's standards agreed yeah if a yeah, day yeah. if this was a debut album of any other band that came out in 1970 it would have been talked I think, about look i think just let me say my piece and then i want you to trammel all over it bob i want you to piss on it <laughs> take a shit on it do <laughs> whatever you got to do okay can i trammel too please please <laughs> but but he's gonna run directly counter it sounds like which is great so the debate's always going to rage on forever for music nerds, whether Stage Fright belongs in part one of band two, the band's canon or part two. Um, I think it's uh, both as good as the first two albums and not quite as good. The reflection of the time and place is really shocking as far as sounding like it came out of that specific place having been there, it really sounds very woody and it, and, it, and it really is that kind of place. But the creeping darkness, which seems to have accidentally seeped into and then basically full and fully taken over the proceedings, characterizes the record. And no matter how you see it, this is the last band record to sniff air as rarefied as this, even if it's just at moments. So I'm just going to go ahead overlook its minor faults of which there definitely are and give it five stars wow five yeah five out of five yeah i am strong because oh every time God. every time i listen to it the the whole outweighs the the parts yeah I, I, I get a very strong sense of time and place i get a very because i'm emotionally invested in the band it's heartbreaking for me to even see that there or hear that there's um you know uh, sort of an arrhythmia to what they're doing well, now. Well, we all have our, our our feelings about bands. And my thing about the band, I think I explained in episode one, they're almost singular in their second, uh, after making a great debut album, their second album is even better. Yeah. There's not many bands you can point to of that. Right. 
right? Because you have your whole lifetime to write your first album. You've got eight months to write your second one. (laughs) And they make an even better record. It's just unheard of. And so the expectations are are Dylan-esque at this point when this record comes out. Yeah. And it seems like a lazy record to me. They just pick some, you know, okay, yeah, that's good enough. Okay, I'm, you know, I'll do the vocals on Monday. Okay. You can just, I can just feel it. I know what it's like to make a lazy record. I can just feel it. It's lazy. But I'll tell you, even in the laziness, they're so fucking great. They have two of their greatest songs on this album. So I give it a three and a half stars. Okay. Nice. I gave this record a four. Okay. Um, and I, the, the, the best parts are really great. And then the, you know, it does not have the same kind of batting average like the first two has. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think the performances are just slightly are missing that kind of magic empathy that they're capable yeah. of at yeah. times, not always, but at times, but still a really good record. And, um, you know, I, there was another, it, it stays strong late in the record too. We haven't even talked about the title track or the rumor. Yeah. So the last, it kind of, that kind of really, it's closes strong. I, yeah. I, it's, it's well stage fright so. by the way there's theories that it's about everyone under the sun a lot of people say that it's about Dylan after recording stage fright the band was among the acts participating in Festival Express I'm sure all you guys have seen that movie yeah that's good yeah yeah so that that the one scene on the um, where Danko is doing a drunken jam session with uh, Jerry Garcia Bob Weir and Janis Joplin they're, d- they're doing Ain't No More Kane that's got to be the best scene in the movie so let's get on to Cahoots, because I'm ready for Cahoots. I love this record. I think they're making a comeback on this record. Okay. So go ahead. Wow, look at this. You are running counter to me. Um, <laughs> all right, so, okay, this begins a new phase. Phase three, coming apart in the country. 1970 to 1973. This is a dark period for the band. 1971's Cahoots was released to mixed reviews for the very first time in their career. We don't really talk about reviews on this show, but they they could do no wrong for a few years. So this was also, distressingly, their last album of original material for four long years. Um, So, uh, you know, one interesting quote, because it is very much true, uh, John Landau, who was a critic for Rolling Stone at the time, described the mood of the album as being filled with a tinge of d- extinction. Um, and here's another good one from uh, Robert Criscow. Seem overly worried about the passing of the world as they know it, though. Not just blacksmiths, but eagles, rivers, trains, the works. I think I, that's what I like about it. I yeah, agree yeah, with yeah. Criscow. Yeah, 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 it's true. So, I mean, I think this is very real based on Robbie's experience watching his... his 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 uh, band members and friends slip away into addiction. Before we get too far into cahoots, one thing I need to mention: if you're listening along and if you're listening to this on streaming, you must avoid the 2021 remix of Cahoots. So this was put out oh, yeah. last year, and it was done. It was like re not remastered, remixed. I know um, that's what I was gonna say. Remastered doesn't really matter. Once in a while, it, it makes it worse. The remix one never, sound, it sounds like shit. But remixing is awful yeah it has all this like exaggerated modern like wide, super wide stereo spread and like digital reverb and like just very it, it sucks you want the original cahoots mix that, yeah. that's right. absolutely vital so, so to me to me this is a difficult album to get a clear handle on if you're a band fan there's a number of uh, uh really essential tracks on here that could easily be it really is it easily really be is wholesale essential. lumped into the initial classic era but it's the first album that for me has clear signs of rot 
uh, and the rule book of their demise can, I think, can be unpacked and well discerned from the lines of the songs in this record. Uh, not to mention a very torpid, lethargic um, kind of vibe uh, on the record. It just it feels like it's uh, kind of drowning in quicksand a little bit. Well, are we talking about stage fright or cahoots? Cahoots, <laughs> cahoots. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Well, that's, how, that's how I feel about stage fright. It was a disappointment, stage fright. But here, they sound like, this this album to me, all all albums are like drugs to me. So this sounds like cocaine's really working. They've all agreed to kind of stay on cocaine and let's be on cocaine. And when we're crashing on from cocaine, we'll have ballads. And when we're high on cocaine, we'll have rock energy songs. And Life is a Carnival is a cocaine song. Like, let's have some fun. Right. Life is a carnival. And then this is the first time I heard When I Paint My Masterpiece. Probably one of the greatest Dylan songs. Yeah. But, yeah. And I, I was a kid and I was so dumb, I thought they wrote it. Cocaine makes you up and down, up and down. And so when I look at this record, there's ups and there's downs. Some of the downs are, you know, trying to be good, but it's just, it's just not working. And some of the downs are just shitty songs and you're down. And I'll admit, like Last of the Blacksmiths, I don't even know why you would put this on a record. Like, yeah, it, an, it's not. It's not dreadful. It's just really undynamic and has a really unattractive melody. It sounds like they're kind of struggling a little bit. You yeah, ever yeah. been crashing on cocaine and you're waiting for the dealer to bring another eight ball? Uh, if I say yes, then my <laughs> then my son's gonna grow up and and be like, what a scumbag okay. my well, dad. I if I say no, me, then you're gonna feel like you have to teach me about every drug on the planet for the next couple hours. Well, <laughs> I have. And the sound of waiting for the drug dealer to come with more cocaine is the song "Last of the Blacksmiths." Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's no it's a no go zone for me. Next one's good though. That was uh, one of my favorites. Where do we go? Uh, that's that's one of my favorites. Yeah, where did the dealer show up? Did where, the dealer show up? Where do we go from here? <laughs> you just look at that title, and it's it's enough to bring tears to your eyes because it's so obviously about them. So it's it's really sad. Uh, how could it's unbelievable they could be feeling this way about themselves this early? Well, you can kind career. of it's one of those ones that has a double meaning. You can kind of interpret it as a love song, but really it's kind of doesn't seem to be really what it's about. It's really kind of seems to be about them. You know? Yeah. How the, you know, well, things things I, change. The heart changes. You know. Like well, things don't last. The reason last. why where don't where do we go from here is written is but supposedly a Martin Luther King statement. Like mm -hmm. uh, that's where they mix everything together. Right. Robbie, did Robbie write this song. Yeah. yeah. Trying to look it yeah, up. Yeah. Yeah. He wrote it and Danko and Helm sang it. And so where do we go from here? That's a good song. Um, it's not a great song. It's a good song. I, I, li I like it because it's a kind of universal sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and that it has the kind of layers of meaning to it. I, I like that song. That one. It's kind of, kind of a heartbreaker me. for me. Yeah. Um, 4% Pantomime is a fucking Stone Cold classic. As far as uh, drinking songs, it's one of the great songs ever sung by drunk people. <laughs> they don't even sound particularly uh, completely smashed, but they are apparently completely wasted. So, um, the and that's, that's Van Morrison guessing. That's Van that. Morrison with, um, um, with uh, Richard Manuel. It's a song co-written by Van the Man and Robbie Robertson. The 4% in the title refers to the difference in alcohol content between two brands of whiskey, uh, Johnny Walker Red and Black. Um, and then uh, Pantomime is the two of them acting out lyrics like complete lunatics during the song. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, apparently the whole thing was acted out. Um, and uh, it's a great song. 
So that's a great way to to uh, to leave off the side. Side two is really a puddle of diarrhea, Bob. <laughs> Go ahead, defend still, this side. I I just can't jump this fast. You guys are. I, I just, I'm stuck on where do we go from here? The feel, lyrics feel are, free to weigh the, in more. Yeah, the go lyrics, ahead, please. I want you lyrics, to take over. He realizes now the world that they revere and the world that they love and the world that they express so much of is not going to exist in five years. Right. It's not, everything is it's moving hyper fast, right? And I think where do we go from here is about us as a society. It's like, what the fuck? We're just tearing everything down and we're throwing away all tradition. I think Robbie Robertson is a traditionalist. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's a fucking hippie. Right. It, traditionally, when you look at the band's way of, of forming this kind of crazy co-op in, 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 in Watkins Glen or in upstate New York, it's like a farming community. It's mm -hmm. like the Quakers. It's not some fucking free hippie shit for a few weeks and then go back to college. Yeah, right. It's like everyone's everyone's got their like uh, task to do and all that. They yeah. believe in being close to the soil, and they and he. I think he can recognize like, oh my god, these. Not only that, Garth is still there. Garth is in his mid eighties. He is still there. I mean, these guys walked it like they talked it. Uh, Levon Helm was still there until he passed away. Um, this was not just a lark of a decision. Well, one of the lyrics is, and now the buffalo's at the zoo standing in the rain. How beautiful of a line is that? Mm. He wrote that in 1971. Yeah. That is what's about to happen. It feels almost like a concept album in real time because he's asking, where do we go from here? I see it as a much more literal uh, thing because I think it's, it's, it's inescapable and unavoidable for him to ask a question like that and not think of the band, even if it wasn't intended as that. When we get to side two, where we go, where we go from here is uh, this is no longer working. So um, something will have to happen soon. Now, once I got this, uh, this record was mostly pretty new to me. I knew, um, you know, when I paint my masterpiece, but a lot other than that, I don't think I really knew many of these songs. By the time I got done with four uh, percent Panama, I'm like, holy shit, this record's amazing. Like up through then, right, up, right. up through that, it seems like it's and a really it is. amazing record. It yeah. really is. It's so it's, shootout I, in Chinatown is the open side too, correct? Yeah. Yes. And it's just like now he's getting into movies. Is what I always thought. It's like it's like this this kind of fantasy songwriting stuff. Yeah. Fantasy, non, not it's not back to the country anymore this is just like pick pick some book to write a song about pick, pick some subject matter be yeah. so there's a there's a yodeling breakdown toward the end of that song just a year prior to making this record they'd have made something amazing out of that section and here they just let it sit like a like a limp weenus. Well, I think with this song, <laughs> this one seems like he's going for that song, that mythical song, storytelling kind of style of songwriting, and it doesn't really kind of fire on all the cylinders. Yeah, it he's doesn't. Not it it doesn't. Um, because he's not feeling it because he's making it up. It's not based on right. something he loves. It's just based on, you know, got to write a song. You got to get another, you got to get more product out. They don't even talk about it like a, it's a piece of art. They talk about it. They call an album at a record company product. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. it is the record. We have business. to get more product out. It's yeah. re refreshingly now it's, it's changed now though in the modern times. Now it's content. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we need more content. <laughs> Speaking of content, the next song is a beautiful slab of product. Um, so this this <laughs> this actually is, I think, one of the best come from behind deep cut classics that Manuel's ever put his uh, his his Vox to the Moonstruck one 
is lugubrious as all get out, but still my vote for the best unknown song that Robbie, that Richard Manuel has ever sung. It's kind of a weird style of writing on this. It's kind of has like a very long chord progression that doesn't really resolve. It, kind of right. has, it has this very kind of like tortured kind of chord progression, but very sad vibes to it. It's the best song on this side, I think. Better even than River Hymn. Yeah, kind of a welcome change of pace. You know, to me, a lot of the songs in side two here are kind of like you know, maybe three or four of them kind of have the trappings of the song of a song by the band, but mm-hmm. don't have the real like meat on the bones, you know, like it, yeah. it has, has some of the stylistic flair. This one is a kind of outlier kind of song for them. It's kind of a weird co- composition, but um, I do like it. I do like that tune. Well, let's uh, let's let's talk about the you can kind of wrap the next three to me. Run the next three all, suck. They, they all run day. together. Volcano to might be the worst song they ever. Wrote. Okay, the, the the next three: Thinking Out Loud, Smoke Signal, and Volcano. Yeah, they those suck. All, those all blend so together. Let's to me. talk about. I, but, I need, but Thinking Out Loud is passable. It's not embarrassing. Let me. Smoke okay, hold on, hold on. Let's do okay. the let's do the embarrassing lyric grab since you're a fan of that. <laughs> no trampoline fell without a scream. Who's looking? <laughs> who's looking for a job? Cross-eyed Jack, monkey on his back. We knew it would not last. Then the sky came crashing down and knocked me off this cloud. When I fell to the ground, I was just thinking out loud. What the I'm gonna out come on, you. Man. Volcano, I'm about to blow. Volcano, gonna overflow. Volcano, look out below. Like this is some of the worst lyrics ever. It's bad, a yeah. Major artist. Yeah, they're, they're it's like the, some of the worst lyrics in, of a major artist. Bob, I'm a little confused. Weren't you supposed to defend this record to the death, and here we are <laughs> trampling on it? I'm a little confused as to the progression here. Because because there are good songs on here. If you go yeah. through what I've been talking about, yeah, yeah. there's solid songs. The last record didn't feel like it had solid songs all the way through. It had right. great songs. Life is a Carnival, When I Paint My Masterpiece, Where Do We Go From Here, Moonstruck, are all really good. Great or good songs, and River Him and 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 yeah, it, cl- it, cl- it closes out with the nice uh, R- River Him, which kind of has a good like. It has the, it sounds very band like. It has that country gospel kind of stew going. It's Levon's vocals a little ragged, but it sounds good. That it closes strong. What are you giving this? I give this album three stars. What do you give it, Bob? I give it four. I give it three and three quarters. I'm not kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I liked it. I liked it less than you guys. It's surprising. I, I really, really do give it that. <laughs> and if you really want to question me on that, I'll see you outside at three o'clock. And a quarter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So 1972, uh, they released Rock of Ages, which is a live double set. We don't really give ratings to live records that don't play a big part of the story. Uh, but this is made from compiled uh, compiled from recordings that were made during a series of shows at the Academy of Music in New York City, starting December 28th, 71, culminating in a New Year's Eve performance that famously brought Dylan out. Um, So uh, it actually peaked at number six. Uh, It went gold, and you can get an expanded version of the release that has everything in its mother on it. Uh, I love it. Uh, I know, Joe, you had expressed some, you know, why am I listening to this kind of... Well, but. here's the thing about live records by the band. Yes, they're cool, um, but their studio albums are kind of like live albums, right? They're they're the good ones anyway. You know, they're kind of recording. well. This is with an audience. You can't underappreciate the yeah. how, ja- how jazzed up you get in front of an audience, especially yeah. an album we're going to get to later. That is it, the only three records I own 
that I've listened to that are here somewhere. If I wanted to listen to them are the first two and last waltz. So it's the only three. Right. Really rock of ages. Um, it, you know, they, uh, they were working with Alan Toussaint who did a lot of the horn arrangements. They're all quite, ta- they're all quite, quite tasteful. Um, I, I kind of like the stuff generally with the horns. I, you know, it's, it sounds kind of tasteful and not too like Vegasy. I don't know um, what about this, wh- but, but like you said on that heroin song, uh, Levon doesn't sound as good singing on this album. Rick Danko steals the show on stage fright. It's the sixth track. Yeah. Um, and life, life is a carnival. I think Rick Danko steals this record. We're not supposed to rate these shits. Yeah. I give, I give it. No, we're not supposed to, but I give it four and a half stars. Oh, okay. I give it four stars too, because of Rick Danko. I want to say, I think Levon went downtown before he went over to Brooklyn. <laughs> I gave I gave I gave this one three. I'm not usually really? a fan. Oh, okay. I'm not a fan of live albums usually. Um, they have some important ones. To, to me, this is a pretty good live album though. Yeah. Um, I, it's just not really I that's usually not what I gravitate towards. All right. Well, guys, here we are. All right. This is a very painful topic for me. It's nineteen seventy-three, okay? Yes, I'm the great this is pretender. A, yeah. <laughs> they could have broken up instead of made this record. Okay, yeah. go ahead. So all right. They released uh, an album of old songs written by non-band members uh, in 1973. There was no tour in support of the record, uh, thank God, uh, and was met with mixed reviews, which is uh, probably much better than it really deserved. Um, It's not... The covers album as a concept isn't necessarily a temporary refuge for the critics. Oh, I think Sam Cooke would have something to say about that. Change is going to come. It's the most lackadaisical... Uh, it just this is an awful record that they shouldn't have put out. In my there's opinion. there's one good song on the record. It's their cover of Alan Toussaint, "Holy Cow," <laughs> which is that's the yes, only that's decent a pre- tune on the whole. Record. That's a pretty good cover, but the original is fucking amazing. the The original uh, Lee Dorsey version of "Holy Cow" is a really amazing song. Um, their version's fine. It's good. Uh, okay, so I want to say another thing about the, these songs. So we can go, we can just list, you can just list them, but but let's pick the awful ones. So I have been a music fan since I was seven years old, since I was five years old, probably. I've had 45s records, been obsessed with music forever, seen every band in the world, including Led Zeppelin. I've seen the Stones on Black and Blue tour. I've seen everything. And I've been everywhere. And I'm telling you, I've heard I'm Ready, which is an old Willie Dixon song. I've seen it sung in bar rooms and in Oakland Coliseum by Robin Trower. And this is the worst version? This is the worst version (laughs) of I'm Ready. You know, here's here's the inherent problem with this record. And, And... you know what I think of when I when I hear this is uh, I think of Sly and the Family Stone around uh, around seventy five or so. It's yeah, really yeah. just Sly Stone, and here's why. So um, these guys had laid down a template for emotional honesty in their work from the get go. So when they release something like this, and it is obviously a temporary refuge for total creative bankruptcy, they know it. We know it. Unless you're an undiscerning music fan, you know what's going on, um, and so you can't you can't just skate by on dog shit like this because of context. How could they do this? 
How much cocaine you got to be on to say, yeah, we should release this well, record? Yeah, this is good. We're gonna say. The, 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 my least favorite thing maybe on the whole record, other than The Great Pretender, is maybe their version of Mystery Train. Mm-hmm. Oof. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. That's a yeah. really rough And guess of what? Train. They yeah. have the gall to put that on some of their greatest hits albums. Right. I, yeah. I Actually, Share Your Love With Me is up there for the worst. It's like a Vegas version of, of, the, <laughs> of the Manuel okay. trilogy. Now, something else ominous happens on this record, which is uh, somebody gave Garth a synthesizer. Yes. <laughs> so this is so sad to me. So, That's where this starts. So, With a whammy bar? I, I want to say for the record that in like around the time of the Basement Tapes, Garth's uh, keyboard playing actually to me sounds like rivulets of mountain water. Yeah, he has kind of a certain sort of style of like this watery kind of playing. And now what happens? Well, he's playing the same. He's playing the same lines. He's playing all the same lines, but instead of on an organ, which sounds all kind of spectral and ghostly, and he's like he's manipulated it to do these cool sounds. It's just this sort of stock like. But Selena it, or something. A very, string. It's very sh- shrill. All very yeah, high it's, end. It's stuff. probably like an arp Selena. Yeah, well, you know. there's that whammy bar. I call it a whammy bar, but it's a round thing that you push yeah, up the, to the, make the pitch go up. The pitch bender. Right? Yeah. Yeah, pitch bender. He's he's in love with that. Yeah, shit. it really works. Guys, the pitch you, bender. guys you, <laughs> you can't go home again. And this, this album is these guys proving that yet again, it's the least relevant and consequential release of their entire career. They're nadir. And... Most importantly, here's here's my pull quote from it. I was very proud of myself when I thought of it. This sounds like a Vegas musical about getting back to the country. Mm, that's I kind get, of a compliment. Well, I, I give, even, that's a compliment. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't even yeah. That actually that. sounds pretty good. So, it does. It I does. would like to see that Vegas yeah, okay. musical, but this album, no. So I give it a half star. Half star. Yeah, I mean, it, every it's got Levon Helm and Rick Danko. It's like to me, it's like what do you give a, it? One, a one. So but, generous, but let me, Joe. What let do you me give say, it? I gave it one and a half. Wow, these are okay. getting better and better. So the let next me guy, I'll let give me talk two. about who let the band down. Okay. So now they're fighting amongst themselves. Now they make a live album. Like okay, you know that means you ain't got no ideas. Now they make a covers record. Their career is over at this point. Yeah. It's fucking right. over. Okay, great context. They here, go here. from they go from the greatest promise that could be equal to Dylan and in 3 years their career is over. Okay, let me take it from here. On July 28th, 1973, they played at the legendary Summer Jam at Watkins Glen, which With to, the to all brothers. Yes, the to, to brothers. all accounts, this is the biggest concert of all time, am I right or wrong? Three hundred eighty-three thousand. No, six hundred thousand. Yeah, but that's just the mythology. They had mm-hmm. three hundred eighty-three thousand people paid to go to this concert. Mm-hmm. It's still the biggest concert in history. I just like saying no, even though I was one year old. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so, from, I lived in Watkins Glen for two years, and I met the guy. Oh no shit! Who, yeah, I lived. I live. I was an alcohol delivery person. Perfect job for me as a as a young man. Okay, it was a huge event by any account, and the left turn that occurred for the band at this is that yes, as you say, Bob, their their career was effectively over. Uh, for Moondog Matinee, but it was during Watkins Glen that discussions began about a possible tour with Bob Dylan, who had moved to Malibu along with, uh, along eventually with Robbie. After a lot of discussion about um, about the possibility of doing it, um, the idea of touring again seemed to really make sense. And so they kind of enter this whole Dylan-y kind of period. There's a bunch of Dylan-related stuff that they get back into. Right, right. Jump starts the old... So what happens is this. Robbie moves out to join uh, Bob Dylan. 
Uh, David Gaffin says, what the fuck are you doing in Woodstock still? That place is a shithole. And so by late 73, uh, Robertson was like, hey, guys, come out here. They all come out. There's pictures of them walking by Robbie's Beach House, totally looking like fish out of water, uh, totally crazy hippie hair and stuff, shambling down the beach. And the first order of business when they got out there was backing Dylan on the album Planet Waves. We enter phase four. The Malibu Sun and its inability to resuscitate the Brotherhood, 1973 to 1976. I'll, I'll disagree. The Brotherhood is resuscitated on Planet Waves. There are some of the greatest villain songs on there. There, there's some of the greatest songs, and it's so free flowing. And the band's music is back on Dirge, on Wedding Song. I hate myself for loving you. This, it, that's, but it is a band record. I think it's you're talking the about four of them. I think you're talking about two different things because I don't think their personal brotherhood was maybe back. They still hated each other, but right. they do play together really great. They on this. play yeah, yeah, excellently yeah. on that album. So, so I see. I think there's a rock critics world of reality, and then there's the real reality. And so one is that they never come back together and be great. They do on that album, Planet Waves. That is the band, my friends. I'm I'm just saying he thought of coming out to Malibu as a shot in the arm for their career, and it didn't survive. And it was three more years and their career was over. I know, but musically, they were back. But musically, he was right. They were back. They are excellent. Forever Young is on that record. I know. Look, Planet Waves is what it is. Uh, You know, I'm a huge Dylan fan. Well, take a look. I'm not giving it a... Think of it this way. It's the most underrated Dylan album ever. It's a very underrated album. Definitely not underrated. It's an underrated album, I would say, for sure. And for this purposes of this, I really enjoyed it, listening in the the context of the band's arc. And I'm kind of with Bob on this one. They're, they the play, music is so beautiful. Like on, Moon, on Moondog Matinee, they're playing other people's material in a very uninspired and right. hackneyed fashion. <laughs> on this record, they're playing somebody else's very material. But, it, but they're playing with that old kind of style of chemistry yeah. and listening, and there's no shitty keyboards on it, and it all works. You know? And so oddly, they make this record, which has a pretty intimate vibe. And this is followed by a huge 1974 tour of sold-out arenas across the country. Um, and a former band employee said, that's when the wretched excess began. Just because there was too much money floating around, it was private jets, best hotel room, limousines everywhere, and of course, white powder. Yeah. So this leads us to Before the Flood, the Bob Dylan double live album, Bob and- Dylan and the Band. Um, I have extensive experience listening to this record ever since I was maybe 15. I used to li- I used to have it on vinyl when I was you know back in the late 80s. I remember you playing this record for me uh, back at in, in the San Fr- in our San Francisco days back in the 90s. I remember you playing the first tune. Most likely you go your way and I, I'll go mine. I remember you showing that to me? I think as a live album, it's better than the last waltz. Um, I disagree with that. And you know, that's, I have an interesting kind of, I always really th- thought I liked this album a lot and listening to it for this, I kind of didn't dig it as much. And th- there's a couple of things about it that kind of stick in my craw a little bit about it. Dylan's, th- I mean, we were talking about this a little earlier on the drive over here. Dylan's vocal style on this, I mean, you can look at it as a plus or a minus. He kind of has a very aggressive kind of I style. see it as a massive plus. You see it as a plus. I saw it as getting kind of like on my nerves by the end of the record. It's kind of a lot of one thing. 
that's a personal taste kind of thing for sure. I am he, so accepting of whatever the fuck Dylan does. Yeah, though. that's the thing. It's a totally he's it's like his most kind of aggressive type of. I have the style. best quote from him. So <laughs> this is funny. Uh, this is so fucking funny. So Dylan uh, d- later on wound up disparaging the tour. Uh, I thought it was overblown. Here's his quote. I think it was just, uh, I think I was just playing a role in that tour. I was playing Bob Dylan and the band were playing the band. It was all sort of mindless. The only thing people talked about was energy this, energy that. The highest compliments were things like, wow, a lot of energy, man. It had become absurd. (laughs) (laughs) Bob, this is like a cocaine record, you think? Yeah, I mean, it's an excess record. And there was so much excess in the mid mid 70s. It's the thing that that launches uh, punk rock. And and I'll show you why. George Harrison, George Harrison makes a live record this time that's lackadaisical. And it's just like, it's hard to believe Bob Dylan and the band and George Harrison make, you know, less than stellar live albums and live tours, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not just Rick Wakeman and Yes and all the other excessive bullshit of the mid-70s that's, that inspires kids to rebel against big rock. It's, it's, it's before the flood. I, I hate to say it. It's, it was a big letdown. I never listened to it. By the, by the way, her- here in Discography City, we love uh, equally... Uh, the dinosaurs and the dead boys. <laughs> right, right. So, but, but, you know, I never listen to this record. If I want to hear the band, I listen to 66, Dylan and the band. Sure. And then I listen to the live, the live stuff from Rolling Thunder, it, he, which is just mind blowing. But this is mediocre. He, and it's Bob Dylan oh, and the wow. band. Yeah, I don't it, think it's so It's Bob Dylan and the band. Here's well, what it's I because here, you were 15 and you no, didn't no, no, know I, <laughs> no, still when I come back to it, first of all, I hear a guy uh, really at the peak of command of his voice. I think he's hitting really crazy notes. Um, his voice sounds very much in control. It sounds like he's really making up for lost time with his energy, uh, even though he disparages the idea of it. It is they are energetic performances. It wasn't. It wasn't. It's why he never. It's why he never became a rock band ever again. That yeah. it just doesn't work. It doesn't Here, work. Here's what I think, and then we can move. We can move on if you'd like, because it's not really Canon Band recording. It's more of a Dylan thing. But um, I believe that Dylan had to have these angry performances before he could connect with the real emotions behind his divorce and make blood on the tracks. In that way, this is very essential um, that he had to work through these. Well, but I think I think it's essential because he turns his back on electric music. He never plays like this again until Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He mm-hmm. he then goes back to the country, back to acoustic music, back to mm-hmm. acoustic Rolling Thunder tour live, and it's and that's where he's best. I would give this a hard five. That's a five for you. I give this yeah. three and found it to be kind of a mixed bag. I give, um, I give it like three also. It's just, yeah. it's not it's not. It, and this is a three to Bob Dylan. Right. I mean, right. come okay. on. So I will say about it. I'll say about it. It's kind of a strong flavor. First, yeah. I think some people might really dig it. So the basement tapes comes out in '75. I don't want to talk about the music, as because we already covered that in '67. I do want to talk about the decision making that went into Robbie Robertson uh, shooting his load all over the record with brand new band <laughs> songs and muddying them up to sound like it came from the big pink basement. Gentlemen, thoughts? 
Well, that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much the deal. Some of them, I, weren't some of them recorded um, not at the Big Pink they House, were, but they contemporaneously? Were, they were, I heard they were outtakes that weren't even finished, and then he took them to Malibu and finished them. And I, that sounds and right. Was, and he was also working with Scorsese on some movie, too. So he was like, becoming some audio, you know, some, right. you know, get it, everything perfect. And that the fact that you could take these old demos really, and then make them and just put them on the record to get a double album out of it is pretty crazy. Yeah. Now yeah. that the, the full basement tape sessions have been released, it kind of like blows a hole in the mythology of this album, which for a mm-hmm. long time was the only really official document available of that period. So uh, I it's, still, it's I still, still enjoyable. Yeah, it's, it's still great. enjoyable it's, to me. It hangs together as, yeah. you know, the band songs that are added to it. I, I read, uh, I did read something that I thought was very funny, which is that um, because Robbie added these songs on, it sounds like, look, if you go back, you hear all the Basement Tape stuff in order. It sounds like Bob Dylan had a backing band that helped him out on a bunch of songs. If you listen to the 75 Basement Tapes release, it sounds like <laughs> the band recorded a bunch of songs, and Bob Dylan happened to buy a, on a few of them. Right. 1975, the Twilight single comes out before Northern Lights. It's a cheesy quasi-reggae shuffle that underpins a pretty fucking minor single from 1975. The, uh, Garth synths uh, are, are, again, sounding like that thin, sickly holiday it's in not. Pack. It's not on the album? They released no, the single no. before? Yes, Where did that yeah. song come from? I think it was uh, from, from the sessions. It's, I give it one and a half stars. <laughs> I gave it a. I never I gave even it two. heard it. I give it five. <laughs> <laughs> what do you give it, Joe? I gave it two. Two. It's, okay. It's, uh, not great. 1975 again. Uh, Northern Light, Southern Cross. So this is the first album to be recorded at the new California studio, Shangri La. Shangri La, who I have slept in. I've I've shot coke in. I've shot guns in. I've slept in. I lived there. I've been arrested there. I know a lot about this building, my friends. Is and there like is there a shooting range in the facility? Or you no, there's just, gonna... just, just guns. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> this is eight songs, and all eight of them are credited to Robbie. And I would say, legitimately, that what you're looking at is uh, half of the album is great. And then half of it is uh, completely dispensable. So the great songs are Hobo, Hobo, uh, Hobo Jungle, Ophelia, Acadian Driftwood, and Acadian no Driftwood difference. is a great song, underappreciated, probably their most underappreciated songs. Yeah, yeah. I lo- I love Acadian Driftwood. That's yeah, it's, it's, like it's set- one of the great most underappreciated songs. Totally, yeah, and it gets, and it gets it's, lost on this record, really. Like, but Ophelia and makes no difference are good songs. They're they're really good. I think they're great songs. So yeah, this one is you know it's it's sort it's kind of short and sweet, and they it's it's almost like right down the middle half and half. But the really good how many good one, minutes is it? It's really it's like, short. It's like thirty five minutes or something, because Acadian Drift Acadian Driftwood's like seven minutes. Listen, I think the main thing about this record is that they have finally found a way to make the slick production that started with Cahoots start to work for them instead of against them. But unfortunately, it's still not anything close to what they had the first several times out. One other thing happened on this is that um, uh, they got a 24-track tape machine. Mm. (laughs) So, and then they filled all the other tracks with like lots of synthesizer. 
So there's like there's some of them like Garth is trying to do these little like he uses synths in the weirdest way because he's using them to try to sound like brass and strings, mm-hmm. but they have this weird like just cheap '70s synth kind of sound. And there some of these songs have like many many layers of those synths, and it's like they just let Garth go completely. Berserk. I want to say that Ophelia is his probably his shining moment as a player. It probably oh, yeah. is yeah. the is the best he ever did. Yeah, so good. I, I'm going to say that the best ca- this this record to me represents the best case scenario when you stop carving out your own idiosyncratic path and now you're just trying to be as good as everybody else. I give it four stars. Four stars. It, me too. Four stars. I gave it a little lower, three and a half. Um, but I will say that the 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 best moments on it are really strong. Yeah. Uh, more so, I think, even than some of their other records. Like the standouts are really really great. Okay, in 1976, there's an outtake on a musical history called Home Cooking. I just wanted to mention that because uh, it's really good. It was actually written by Danko uh, and, of course, therefore has, has no place on Northern Lights or Islands because he just wasn't part of the story by that point as far as Robertson was concerned. But it sure beats almost everything on side two of Northern Lights. I give it three and a half stars. I gave this one three, and what I liked about it is it's just the five of them playing, and it's not like a, like there's not like a Vangelis record being overdubbed on it at the same time. It's just Bob, like are you regular. familiar with this thing? Yeah, I, I have never heard it. No, I don't know. Oh, I, I shameful. Don't know shameful. We're going to have to retape this entire thing. <laughs> In November of 1976, the greatest concert up until that time happens. The last waltz. Okay, let's. Uh, I'm going to just stop the show right here, Bob. Explain to everyone what the Neil Young Coke Booger Rotoscope was all about. Okay, so apparently I know everything about that night. It was, it was, and it was days in the planning. So there was an actual room that was for doing cocaine. They was called the White Room instead of the Green Room. Yeah, and you went there to get this. This is how crazy these people are. You went there right before you went on stage. <laughs> and all the tables had razors on them. Great idea. And so thus. The Van Morrison karate chop kicks. Thus, the huge cocaine booger hanging out of Neil Young's (laughs) nose. Thus, Bob Dylan not even knowing the chords to his own song. (laughs) And so much teeth grinding that there was actually mounds of tooth powder on the stage afterwards. It was amazing, but Levon did not go in the white room. He is solid as a rock, sings like the fucking angels, he really and does. gives one of the greatest rock performances in live history. It's yeah. true. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of outstanding. So wait, let's so Levon was sober for this. No, I just don't think he's doing cocaine. He's not on blow. He's probably having <laughs> okay. a couple of drinks, maybe. So these are all, so basically the, the uh, okay, the intention of the last waltz. I think everybody entered into this possibly with different or uh, warring intentions that in the through the mists of time have been forgotten as far as the total veracity of it. But I think Robbie Robertson was not intending on ending the band, and the guys weren't intending on breaking up the band. It was just going to be uh, the, uh, the last waltz for touring, but they were going to be a studio concern a la Brian Wilson sort of thing. Right. So it was a big event. Uh, Bill Graham got tons and tons of turkey. It was a Thanksgiving celebration. Uh, all their influences and people they'd worked with were uh, involved. They had uh, cutouts of Groucho Marx's nose postered and plastered all over the walls in the white room. Uh, the whole thing was total 70s excess. Um, 
Neil Young spent tons of money computer rotoscoping a, co a cocaine booger out of his own nose so that the movie, <laughs> so that he wouldn't have to be in, in total uh, horror watching his uh, his offspring watching the movie in the future. Um, and what do you guys think about the uh, the uh, the actual product? Well, for starters, they played fifty songs or something that night. The show starts at nine a.m. You need cocaine if you're going to play fifty songs. True. Yeah. So um, they and the the last song, "Don't Do It," which um, uh, opens Marvin the movie. Um, they that was the last thing they played, and that was at two fifteen a.m. So they've been playing for over five hours. Um, and um, that's a lot of last waltzing. This concert is so great that it makes it seem like the the down parts and the and the Moondog matinee and the infighting just it covers it all up and it leaves a perfect hi history for the band. It's the greatest concert ever. It's how they got everyone there to get Joni Mitchell, Van Morrison, Neil Young, Bob Dylan to San Francisco. Just whoever made that happen. Just, just, just as a, as a st in stark opposition to what you're saying, Levon Helm, who you love, truly hated the last waltz, calling it the biggest fucking ripoff that ever happened to the band. Uh, a, a lot of the reason is because of the royalties, obviously. But yeah, he uh, he also said he saw it as a vanity project for Robertson, uh, noting. Scorsese's long, loving close-ups of Robertson's heavily made-up face <laughs> and expensive haircut. I mean, he's not wrong. Well, yeah, and cool hat. And, <laughs> yeah. and cool hat. No, right. Don't. But don't forget, like, Robbie's standing. If you, if you see the band at Watkins Glen, like, Robbie stands in that same spot. So Scorsese chooses to shoot Levon with, with Robbie in the floor of the shot. It's crazy. It is a Robbie Robertson PR film. Up on Cripple Creek is my favorite song by the band on it, but my favorite song period on it is Manish Boy. That's pretty fun. That's fun to watch. It's so it's good. It's unbelievable. It's just a great way to go out. I give it four and a half stars. I know you guys are going to give it a five. I give it yeah. five. Obviously. This is hard for me to rate as a thing. I mean, I, I guess you kind of have to give it like four and a half or five. It's just such yeah. a classic, iconic thing. You can give um, it whatever you want. You're the co-host of Discovery. It's great as a movie, too. I mean, yeah. the, mo the movie is, is a five-star movie for sure. I mean, the record... Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. I. I kind of NA'd this one. Mm -hmm. um, this one's harder. Hard. I mean, it's. The, it's their best live album. I would say uh, it's better than the other ones, and um, it's got everything on it. Is the other thing. So, if you, it's like their. It's like the final exam. You know, it's like yeah. it's like they're they're showing you how they how they play every song that they know how to play pretty much. So here's here's what Robbie. Also, you can get uh, the, the deluxe edition has all fifty performances on. Thank whatever, God. So, <laughs> so if you like, they do Acadia and Driftwood, and they do a lot of stuff. Oh, that, okay. Yeah, they I do a lot of they that. do a lot of good ones that didn't make the movie or the. Or the soundtrack. So in in '86, Robbie says, uh, "I made my big statement. I did the movie. I made a three record album about it. And if this is only my statement, not theirs, I'll accept that." They're saying, "Well, that was really his trip, not our trip." Well, fine. I'll take the best music film that's ever been made and make it my statement. I don't have any problem with that. None at all. The last waltz wasn't supposed to be the band's last gasp. Robertson only imagined it as a farewell to touring and a beginning to a studio-only life, like the Beatles who quit touring in 66. Um, each member was initially kept on a retainer of $2,500 a week, 
under a new contract with Warner Brothers. So if that's not proof that they were planning on continuing, I don't know what is. Robertson had booked studio time in California to finish up the suite that concludes The Last Waltz, plus some cuts off their new album, Islands, but no one showed up. I had to read the writing on the wall, he recalls in his book testimony. They broke up in 1976. Phase five, the long, slow, torturous 23-year fade to black, 1976 to 1999. Moving forward into 1976. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. The band is over at the last waltz. You just said it. I no, this is phase five, dude. Talk about all these shitty records. This is, you promised us. <laughs> you committed to doing this program in its entirety, Bob. I'm not going to talk about that one with the frog on the cover and all. We were, we're going to focus on the frog album. <laughs> what is that frog album called? It's called Ribbit. It's the not, Ribbity Blues. No, no. I think I think no, it's a pig. Yeah, wait, it's a pig. Hold on, on stay hog. with us. Looks, high on the hog looks like a frog. Look not high that. on the frog. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> Dude, it's so I can't do this. Like to me, to me, here's here's what happened to me. Robbie goes off and produces records and becomes an executive at record companies and all that shit that he does, all highfalutin Malibu West LA bullshit that I didn't like. I have no interest in, but he goes off to do that. The band as it existed that I love, that I heard when I was eight years old is it's over. The new band can go out and play. And I saw them many times. I saw them many times. If you consult the play, which I'm sure you're going to, I'm sure you're <laughs> going to have your way with it. Uh, the last five songs on the record are going to, or on the playlist are going to blow you uh, six ways to kingdom come. Here's the thing. So I think Dave, I talked to you about this. I would go and see the band anytime all four of them were playing. Sometimes yeah. only Rick Danko was playing. So it was it was almost an abomination that Robbie Robertson let them use the band name. And and I saw them with all four of them at the coach house in San Juan Capistrano. It was amazing. I look, I think I understand what's happening here. You are leaving us prematurely based on philosophic principles. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> They're not band records. He's just letting them make some money. I'm That's hearing what words, is, really. but all I'm hearing really is the answer to my question. No, I can't. Uh, you I can't. are. It's just too depressing. You, you I understand. Me, it's too depressing. No, no, uh, no. I can't but, say goodbye. You'll just, just have to hang up on me. Their voices are. Okay, you can hang up on me, but I'm not going to review the hog frog record. <laughs> All right, Bob, you may be right, you, you may be excused. Okay, I'm sorry, but like come it's on, okay, you guys, don't do this to yourselves. I'm trying to save you guys. Don't uh, we, do wait, it. Wait, you, you should hear. One. You should hear some of the other shit we listen to for this show. <laughs> <laughs> you should check out like the B, the Bee Gees record from 1993. <laughs> I think these are bad. Look, just. Uh, just because I know you were objectively incorrect about this, here's how I feel about it. I will not stand for that kind of ribald contention on this show, Joe. He had to tap out. He got. He had to do it. All right. So anyway, here we are in 1977, uh, and the little wet fart of an album called Islands comes out. Let me give you the context for this. So um, <clears throat> this is, uh, first of all, the final studio album from the group's original lineup. And primarily composed of uh, previously unreleased songs from the from the band's whole career, including the 1976 cover of Georgia on My Mind, uh, which was try. The idea was to help uh, Jimmy Carter get in the White House. This was uh, the real. This was a contract filler. 
Yeah, um, this is well. They uh, they the last waltz came out on like a different uh, label. I'm Warner Brothers. Um, so yeah. Islands was uh, released to fulfill the contract with Capitol so that they could release Last Waltz on Warner Brothers. Um, and, and in the CD liner notes, Robbie compares the album to The Who's Odds and Sods. I want to just point out that there's a total of three songs worth talking about. Um, one is Christmas Must Be Tonight. I think a great Christmas song. We know how we feel about Christmas songs. Um, I do feel like a warmth around the hearth sort of deal with this one. Yeah, I gave this one a a, a, a thumb slightly up. <laughs> <That's, that's laughs> For you, that's pretty good. This kind of has like uh, it sort of has like a like it's pretty sweet. I think it also it has kind of like a late night Christmas thing to it. Yeah, it's yeah. Weird. You know, it's kind of has some of the old mojo. It, it's yeah, not, it's not bad. It's not bad. It's the best song on the album. Um. There's a couple other songs that I think are decent. The, the saga of P- uh, Papote Rouge and Knockin' Lost John. But let, let's face it, these those, are sort of cast off. Well, and those are and also kind of like another attempt at writing the like mythical story song. Like mm-hmm. it, it's sort of like it's a, too self-conscious. It's like a poor man's Across the Great Divide. Very, very poor man. So this is to me, this record is table scraps only barely to be considered a canon band record. Some of these um, um, second half noticeably better than the first, by the way. Some of these sound like uh, they're kind of getting into like uh, soft rock kind of yep. yacht, yacht rocky kind it's, of vibes. Yeah, dangerous place and then for them a, to be. There are a couple that sound like they could be like maybe like TV sitcom themes of the time. Like this is a you know fill the contract album. That, yeah, like, I give it two and a half stars. I, Barely I, worth talking about. I gave honestly. it. I gave it two. And two. We'll, we'll pick the right, stuff so, from the playlist, but it's right, not let, like a real album. Let, that let me to make. let me fill in some historical context now because this is where a lot of people kind of check out on them. And there's interesting stuff that kind of ha- starts. It keeps uh, happening around this time. So Rick Danko was the first guy out of the gate with a 1977 solo album. If you were paying attention, you would think Rick Danko was winning the solo sweepstakes. Um, It's the only post-band venture that features all the guys on it. Uh, Unfortunately, each of the four other guys made an appearance on one song each. He's like the Ringo. He gets along with all of them individually. Right, right. It's what a cry and shame. Uh, unfortunately, the songwriting is pedestrian. The magic is gone. Uh, the original quintet would perform together one last time after the late set of Rick Danko's March 1st, 1978 solo show at the Roxy. They performed Stage Fright, The Shape I'm In, and The Weight for an encore, it would be the last time all five musicians would ever perform together. Mm-hmm. Um, so just a few things to kind of sweep us through the time. So Manuel mo- uh, Richard Manuel moved to Garth Hudson's ranch outside Malibu, um, went into rehab, uh, first time ever uh, clean and sober in uh, 1978. Uh, he was remarried to his longtime girlfriend, uh, Danko and Manuel began to tour clubs as a sort of semi-acoustic duo. Um, so at this point also, um, Richard Manuel, along with Robbie Robertson, did some work on Raging Bull for Scorsese. And uh, also uh, Manuel and Hudson contributed Between Trains um, 
a song by Robbie Robertson that was on the King of Comedy soundtrack. For so they're all kind of working with Robbie a little, except yeah. for uh, Levon. Right, right. He's kind of noticeably absent. Mm-hmm. Um, so 1983, they're just kind of kicking around for a few years, trying different things out. Levon Helm, of course, acting in Coal, Coal Miner's Daughter, doing a great job of it. Um, the band resumed touring in 1983. This is why Bob hung up on us. Uh, the Bob <laughs> resumed to, the band the Bob the band resumed touring in '83 without Robertson. So Robertson had no desire to join these guys. Um, when he was asked uh, what he thought about uh, this happening, uh, he says it's hard to say anything against anybody who's just trying to do what they do and make a living. You can't say how dare you do this. So I said, I have no problem with any of it. My attitude was, do it with my blessing. I didn't know what else to do. He's a funny guy, Robbie, because yeah. uh, on the one hand, he's sort of this kind of obvious megalomaniac, and like, yeah. and um, like wants like an outsized sh- share of the attention and everything. But then on the other hand, he's I think maybe he's maybe he's measured in what he says, and he comes across as reasonable when you read things that he said in print. But then you yeah. look at all their reactions of dealing with him over the years, and they're, they're all like, they, they clearly... Yeah, like, they, a, like a horrifying maniac. They clearly right? find him very annoying. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, it, so, uh, you know, these guys at this point, they're, because their popularity is diminished, you know, these days, Joe, everyone says we're retiring, and everyone comes back. Right. Back then, it meant that, you know, these guys were sad losers for coming back, because no one did that back then. Right. So... They keep touring, and unfortunately, they're performing in theaters and clubs. They're gone from Malibu, okay? Danko, Helm, and their families had gone back to Woodstock, and uh, uh, Richard Manuel returned with his wife in the spring of 84. Um, For a little while, he actually contemplated making a Robertson-produced solo album, but instead decided on resuming cocaine, heroin, and alcohol. Um, he would have one more stint in rehab in 85. One of the last things that he ever wound up doing was a, a background vocals on Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' Best of Everything, uh, which was co-produced by Robertson off of Southern Accents. Uh, in 85, the band went into the studio for the first time since 77. Uh, they wanted to record tracks for an album. Minus Robbie, I assume. Minus Robbie. Yeah. Uh, so Richard Manuel... Um, had had recently begun saying, I want to do, want to start writing stuff. And they were excited. He was going to sort of be their, potentially their Robbie Robertson. So he actually wrote a song with Goffin and King called Breaking New Ground. Um, unfortunately, on March 4th, 1986, after a gig by the band um, at the Cheek to Cheek Lounge in Winter Park, Florida, uh, Manuel Ominously, after the show, he thanked Garth Hudson profusely for 25 years of good music and appreciation. And Garth Hudson was apparently like, what the hell? Uh, As he was packing up his keyboards uh, to be shipped to the next venue after the show. Danko, um, who actually struggled quite a lot with substance abuse, uh, actually confronted Richard Manuel after after the show about his alcohol use. Late that night, Richard Manuel hanged himself. He was 42 years old. 
Well, it's hard to believe that he was only 42 when he died. I know. Because you think about it, in the, in, you know, let's say in the late 70s when they're at the end, of, or the, you know, 76, 77, when they're at, at, in the end of their original incarnation. He's like in his early 30s. Mm-hmm. He seems like such an older soul than that. It doesn't he really does. seem possible that he I was... I don't think he seems like an old soul. He looks old because he looks He weathered. does look old, and then the way he sings... It's like he, you know, it, 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 everything that kind of, even, and when you see him in the last waltz or interviewed or something, he just does seem like this kind of, from another time, kind of, yeah. like, he, he seems like very old soul-like to me. Yeah. Um, and, just you know, pure pain. I mean, just like a live wire of pain. Yeah. I mean, he uh-huh. really uh, did a lot of living in that 42 years. He, it's, he, he really took a, you could see the physical, he aged, it seemed like he aged very rapidly. Yeah. Yeah. It's a sad one because really the writing is on the wall from the very first thing he ever recorded. The guy's got sadness embedded in everything he does. So, I mean, um, from this point on, it was never again going to be the band. No. You could put the name the band on something yeah. and you could have some combination of them playing. But I really am a firm believer that more, them more than almost any other artist, probably in the history of music, you can't remove one of the elements. No, you can't. You and have in fact, to have all five of them. I think more so than any so other. So in fact, in fact, famously, uh, and you and I talked about this uh, I, in the documentary, they make a strong case for that because in '74, after the tour with Dylan, uh, those guys afterwards kept the tour going without Dylan. Apparently, that's where the drug abuse got insane. Mm-hmm. And Richard uh, wound up, you know, just effing up his connection and uh, missed his timing or what have you. So he was going cold turkey uh, off stage. He wound up not playing. And they went on without him, and it was just a Richard Manuel-sized hole in their yeah, sound. Right. And they said it was so weird, it was almost spooky. Yeah, right. All right, so in 1992, this was released in 93, the band on Bob Dylan's 30th anniversary concert celebration donated their version of When I Paint My Masterpiece. I'll give it two and a half stars. That's fine. Those big celebrity like, Doesn't matter. reunion concerts. Are Doesn't matter at all. Boring. Okay, whatever. Next. Okay. What's your, what do you give it? I give it two. Okay. 93, Jericho comes out. Okay, so a note up front. The album covers a painting by Peter Max of the big pink house in Socrates where those, you know, these guys had created their most vital music. So uh, coming 17 years after their farewell, farewell concert, this is released in 93. Uh, this is the first album to feature them and having big pink on the cover sort of sets the expectation level a tad high. Would you say? Yeah, um, you know, you kind of have to think. You can't really think of this as like it's the band. You have it's almost no. works better if you think of it as like a, it's a Rick Danko, Levon Helm record. This and is Garth, as close Garth, as we get. Garth though. plays on some of it. If you of the last three, of I the agree. Last three. Yeah, if you try to like attach that to it, it makes it less enjoyable. I think right. you kind of got to appreciate it for what they're capable of doing at that time. Yeah, um, you know, there are some like production touches of it that are like... Well, let's talk about the changes in the band. Right. So, um, so... They were joined by not Robbie Robertson and not Richard Manuel. Right. <laughs> and also an band. additional 14 guest musicians. <laughs> right. So, well, I guess they were just figuring having so many guests um, would assure them some kind of excitement or just uh, hoping that uh, that would happen. There's a couple songs that are pretty fucking cool on this. Well, to me, it's kind of a pretty generic Americana record, but it's yeah. it's elevated by the fact that Levon Helm is in your band, you right? Know? And so right. there's a you know, and that's really the main you know, and, and of course the other guys too. 
um, you know, there are some modern touches on it that are really, you know, I hate to be picky about stuff like this, but the sort of bright, kind of crisp drum mm-hmm. sound, the way the drums are tuned, I don't really, I mean, I always love, um, you know, Levon's drum tuning and his sounds and, the, you know, the way those old records sound. Um, this has that very, like, of its time, 90s kind of crack to the snare drum. Yeah. The bass player. Um, Let's thank uh, Steve Lillywhite and Hugh Padgham for that. Yeah, there's like, there's like, there's parts of it where the, like, the bass guitar plays a low D, which <laughs> may not mean a lot to you if you're not a musician. It but, means you know, nothing Bass to guitars me. only go to E. Mm-hmm. And then anything below a low E is like rumbly. It means you got a fifth string on your bass. <laughs> so, no bueno. <laughs> really, really, just like that sound is just like it. What's just, the musical consequence of that decision? It just sounds like it's not a bass. It sounds like you're like a cheesy guy with a five string bass. You know, it's like okay. it's 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 very like hairs on the back of my neck standing up. Like it's it's. Do uh, you like anything on the record? Um, I like the song "Caves of Jericho." That's that, that's a great song that, that Levon wrote with John Simon. So that, that's the best song on the record. Yeah, I, I think I, that's a really good. There's song. another one called Too Soon Gone. Too Soon Gone's that, um, great. So, they, they brought in Jules Shear. Right. They, they, originally, this was supposed to be a record that he was supposed to mostly write. And um, that one kind of nails the sound. That uh, that's one, the only song I think that he wrote that made this record. It was supposed to be a whole record of him writing all the tunes. So that one works. What, what's cool about that little section is you have that song, then you have the Richard Manuel co- uh, cover of Country Boy right. next. So that's a beautiful little tribute pocket. The ones that are kind of good are written in like the songwriting voice of the band. The two you mentioned are frankly the only ones really, truly worth mentioning. Yeah. The Caves of Jericho, Too Soon Gone. You can find them on our playlist. It's not a great album by any stretch of the imagination because the songs just aren't as mind-blowing as what they gave us once upon a time. But Mm -hmm. all the band characteristics are still a present and a canon for. And I think it kind of works. I give it two and a half stars. I gave it the same, two and a half. Cool. So, okay. 1996, High on the Hog, the reason Bob Forrest hung up on us. (laughs) As, As with its predecessor, uh... High on the Hog, it's relying heavily on covers. There's two songs on this one that I would recommend, Where I Should Always Be, written by Blondie Chaplin, uh, he also of the Beach Boys fame. That's a ballad worthy of mention, I think, uh, that are handled well by these guys. And also She Knows. Uh, She Knows is Manuel's last appearance on a band record, and I think it's a pretty affecting song. Um, this one, I wasn't really feeling anything on it. The, the Blondie Chaplin tune's kind of like the close but no cigar. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I get th- this it. This one, the record, the, the playing and arrangements and stuff are very pedestrian. It, they sound kind of like, you know, they're like the like the second best blues band in like Rochester, right, New York right, or something. Right, it sounds right. kind of like local. It, you know, it's like, it's not bad. I agree. I agree. But it's, it's just it's, not, it's really, not a great record. It's not that special, and um, the this is the worst record by the latter incarnation. Yeah, and you know they didn't really have the songs weren't as good. They had at least a few decent songs in the last one. Um, this one feels just kind of less inspired, and um, you know I, I gave it one star. Yeah, I give it one and a half. I mean, even the two Dylan songs don't merit second listens. Yeah, it's a, oh, like oh, a six-plus-minute version of Forever Young, and yeah. there's so many good versions of that song. That, you know, and also oh, what let, about they do they do Free Your Mind. You know that. When I no, when that came that? on, I was like, I hope this is free your mind by En Vogue. <laughs> and it, oh, is that it, what it, it is? is? Oh Lord, <laughs> what the fuck decision I wear was tight. that? Levon sings like, I wear tight clothing, hip hop clothes. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, it's pretty dumb. Um, man, that's rough. Um, okay, so 1998, the second to last ever band release, uh, new band release, Jubilation comes out. So. 
That's the 10th and final album by the group. Yeah, um, this one's kind of more of the same for me. There's really nothing to recommend in terms of like chemistry or like really interesting playing or like good sounds or like, you know, strong songs. It's kind of a pretty straightforward Americana kind of record. Uh, if it was, if it did not have the name of the band on it, it would probably not have drawn any attention at all. Right, right. Well, um, you know, uh, it, it, this was recorded in spring of 98 in Woodstock at Levon Helm's home studio. For the first time since the group has reformed without Robbie, um, there's more originals than covers, which is, that's a good sign. Their voices are also starting to sound pretty weathered on this. Like they're starting to kind of struggle to get through the tunes. Guys who were, who were once very strong singers. Right, right. I feel like they're kind of barely croaking it out. Also on only one track. Uh, if I should fall, do all six group members actually show up on? Right. I I think I think this one's definitely more consistent than the last one. Yeah, I, I really one, really I gave, hate the last. I gave one. this one one and a half, and I, I give this one two. Right. I give this one right. two. Uh, each each record, I think, since the band comes back, offers a couple choice cherry pickers. But aside from those, this record features less weak tracks and a more uh, consistent representation of material. Um, also. Uh, having at least band member co-writes on most of the songs makes it, to me, a good way to go out. Yeah. I give it two. Okay. Um, Fair enough. In 98, the group revealed that they're working on a follow-up album to Jubilation that, to date, unfortunately, has not been released. And then lastly, in 1999, they come kind of come full circle. On the Tangled Up in Blues compilation, they pitch in One Too Many Mornings, the Bob Dylan tune that they played with him, on the spring 66 tour and thus we come full circle i give that two and a half stars i gave it two grudgingly because it has it has that low d in the bass again (laughs) i don't know who's doing that you gotta point that shit out to me i'm not cognizant of that all right so uh choice some choice noteworthy historical dates uh that all of which are sad on december 10th 1999 rick danko dies in his sleep at the age of 56 following his death the band break up for good Mm-hmm. On April 19th, 2012, Levon Helm dies of cancer. On February 27th, 2022, which to date is only a couple weeks ago, uh, Garth Hudson's wife, Maud, passes away, um, with whom he'd been performing in recent years in good old Woodstock, no less. Still ensconced in good old Woodstock. Yes, only Robbie and Garth are still with us. And of course, you can find Robertson pontificating endlessly about the band's past, probably even in his sleep. (laughs) So let's talk about the overview and shape of their arc, okay? First, they gleaned so many unbelievable lessons from a series of incendiary frontmen, not to mention one of the all-time great songwriters. So by the time they launched, it was like they'd been shot out of a cannon. That lasted from 67 to 70. Woodstock and the environs seeped deep into what they did, but unfortunately so did heroin and booze. 71 to 74 was wobbly terrain when they weren't pounding the studio in a random pavement with Bobby D, but they wrapped it all up with a nice little bow for 1975's Northern Lights and 76's Last Waltz. Everything after that, you could be forgiven for not considering it canon, but I do. Those final three records... They have their charms, but with all the reaching out to old friends to continue subsisting, as well as all the death coagulating around them, ultimately, their 90s revival was a sad one that traded on their decades-old brotherhood. Let's talk about our top three records. I'm going to go with number three, Stage Fright, number two, Music from Big Pink, 
Number one, the band. Worst album, even with those final three records, without Robbie and without Richard, I would have to go with Moondog Matinee. Well, I have the same exact uh, top three and worst one. It's a little bit self-evident here. The really, the only real like um, coin flip is whether you want the uh, the brown album, the self-titled or album Big Pink, or Big Pink. That's really the only. I you, you know, I kind of was he- I was tempted to put Big Pink as number one, but I think I listened to the brown album more, and I kind of know it more. When I was younger, it was Big Pink. I yeah. would have wrestled you to the ground for that one. And uh, talking about their arc, I do think that like the last waltz kind of really did achieve its unintended objective because it really is it does like kind of is what it says it is it was it wraps it up world. with a huge it wraps it up nice bow. and it kind of you know it shows everything they can do and it's it's sort of like it would have been more poetic if they had just like ended there and not put out islands and like you know but life isn't like that life's life, not perfect life is like the band that's we right. like we like to cap things off and make things nice and tidy life, life is not life like often that. has a, a not that satisfying 1990s comeback <laughs> anyway uh, this has been totally epic, has it not, Joe? It has indeed. I this one uh, stayed with me a lot. I will. Uh, this was a really majestic trawl. The whole world to go into. I recommend doing the same thing yourself. Just listen to everything. Absolutely. Uh, frankly, just press play on our playlist. That's really the way to do it. Uh, the link to the playlist is in the show notes. Also on our website, discograffiti.com, um, and you can send us a voice memo using the link in the show notes and let us know what you think. Uh, do you think that the band after The Last Waltz, is that still band canon, or is that not count? Would you hang up on me if I asked you for your opinions <laughs> on those final three records? Please let us know. Bob, by the way, is way too polite to actually hang up. Just that's for the right, record. That's right. <laughs> for the record. I hate that he's you doing, actually revealed He's doing, that. Doing, a, doing a bit. Why anyway. did you have to tell him that was a Jerry Lawler, <laughs> Andy Kaufman kind of thing? Anyway, yeah, come come see us in the uh, you know our Facebook discussion group. Follow us on all the you know on our, on the Instagram and the Twitter, and um, you know tell tell a friend. Um, you know we're really looking to grow the audience. And, yeah, um, yeah, that as big as possible. Also, don't rate to we 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 really support five star ratings of this podcast. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, we give five or star Spotify. ratings. Five, I give five star ratings for our show. Five stars. That's right. I give I give it six stars. Where the, there's a new rating system for five star ratings. We come out weekly. We've gone through some uh, serious stuff uh, since we started this. Uh, you know, uh, what twenty one weeks ago, uh, and we kept on posting one a week without fail. We will be there for you. We expect you to be there for us, uh, and we definitely will see you next time on, on Discography. Discography. <laughs>